what does it look like if we take the concept of regeneration to the grave? Today, Micah Truman and Bree Smith are my guests, and we are talking human composting on the Lotox Live podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 274. Uh, as you might have heard from that little teaser that I gave you today, we are talking about something called terramation. Uh, it is all about human composting when we die and how we can be more sustainable, but also how one business has found a way to help families grieve by their loved one's side and return to them their loved one in the form of fertile, rich soil. Now, that might all sound a little bit crazy, but I know speaking to quite a few uh, Lotox Club members over the years, people who've done the courses, we talk about things like coffins and polyester fills and lacquered wood and how that just does not seem right or natural uh, and people are yearning for a more connected experience when our loved ones pass away, uh, something that helps us feel like we can move through it in a way that feels more connected to the whole process. You know, we have such death and dying phobia. We have shame around grief. We've unpacked that in the show a couple of times in the past. And I think um, coming across Micah and Bree's work uh, through their business Return Home was really intriguing to me and I wanted to bring this to the podcast. So I ask you to trust me on this. I felt that I was actually deeply moved by the work they're doing and a way that they have found uh, to bring sustainability and regeneration into uh, death and dying in, uh, I mean, I hate the term civilized because that's so arguable, right? In so many ways. Uh, but into modern life where we have, as with many things, disconnected from the natural law of things. Uh, so I hope you enjoy, uh, that conversation with Micah Truman and Bree Smith. It's coming up in just a minute. I want to thank once again our major sponsors, Oz Climate. You have all year round Aussies out there, 10% off their already discounted prices with the code LOWTOXLIFE, nice and simple. What do they sell? They sell and make uh, incredible quality air filtration uh, units, as well as dehumidifiers. And for anyone listening to the show live right now on the east coast of Australia, you need a dehumidifier for several months of the year in this climate. I would say also for east coast US, go and check out your local resources. Humidity is a killer when it comes to uh, indoor air health, uh, primarily because once the humidity is at a prolonged rate of over 60% humidity in your indoor environment, 
that allows for a much greater chance that you're going to have a visit from the ugly friend mold, uh, which might seem annoying that your shoes and your bags uh, get a little bit uh, moldy and your cupboard smells a bit musty. But of course, we know that this can impact people's health, respiratory conditions, inflammation, all sorts, and dehumidification is way better than trying to clean mold. I don't want to receive questions about how to clean mold. I want to educate you on how to prevent it in the first place. Obviously, with leaks and water damage and floods, that is it's impossible unless we get to the root cause of things and, and fix those. But most average houses just retain too much humidity in certain points of the year or throughout prolonged periods of rainfall. And we can mitigate the dangers of mold growing in the environment by having dehumidifiers. So give the guys a call if you're not sure about your floor plan or how many units you might need or what size of unit you might need. We're in a small two bedroom and we've got two compact 16 liters and they do us just fine. But if you were in a, had a large open plan living dining situation, if you had upstairs, downstairs, then you may need bigger, more powerful units. Uh, if you are struggling with um, not being able to get things under 60% at the moment because you have a big open plan or because it's been really, really wet, uh, it sure has in Sydney. We're having our first days of sunshine for weeks uh, and we know that so many communities have been absolutely devastated by floods. Um, one hack for you is to get all your cushions, clothes, everything that can absorb moisture, uh, cushion, uh, sofa inserts, mattresses, anything like that. Drag it all into the smallest room in your house, bedroom, uh, preferably, and put on one or two powerful dehumidification units in there, close the door, and they will then be able to get dried out in that smaller confined space than they would in a really big, wide open space. So that's a bit of a hack from um, one place we lived in that was very humid and by the sea a couple of years ago. And I used to just bring every week, I would bring all our cushions and all of those sorts of things from the big open living dining space and put them in a small bedroom to get them dried out. And if you do that once a week, they're never going to get to the point where they've been wet enough, long enough to get moldy. Uh, so low tox life is your code, ozclimate.com com.au is your uh, website to go to, and that's AUS for Oz. And then, of course, uh, a lot of people want to know how they can help flood affected areas, as well as uh, the very devastating uh, conflict in Ukraine right now. And so today in the show notes, I have put multiple resources to help you connect to organizations on the ground doing incredible work in these places so that you can fuel them with more finances to do the incredible work they're doing on the ground. Uh, so head to our show notes, lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast, and you can hear more about our major sponsor, Oz Climate, as well as all the places you can donate. That is all I have to share for you today before we start this interesting exploration into the work they're doing at Return Home. Enjoy. Hello, Bree and Micah. How are we doing? Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. It's 
a subject that's not easy to talk about, death and dying, um, but one that we need to talk about more and hopefully will fuel uh, the idea for people to think about how we can literally ourselves become circular in the, the true cycle of life where everything that dies gives birth to something else. Uh, and, you know, we talk about it with worm farming and composting. We chuck our veggies in. and we're, But, like, humans get put in these strange polyester-lined coffins <laughs> inside big wooden boxes, also quite unsustainable, and then put under the ground. And I'm fascinated by how this even came to be, that that was a good idea, um, but also what you guys work on and how you work with families and how you're actually trying to change that story uh, for the better of the families and their process of celebrating a life and grieving a death, but also how we can all do something for the planet in, in the work that we do while we're on Earth. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, we'll take it in two sections. Maybe I would like, you know, sort of jump in in the beginning with how it all started and yes, why please. we're so passionate about this. And, and Brie can take that latter side sort of on the, the professional funeral aspect of the, of the equation. Um, Washington State, which is where we are, uh, was the first place on earth to legalize what we call terramation, human composting. And it was a radical departure. No one else, no other geography had ever done that. And that began, we began to hear that it was, you know, sort of coming down the pipes in uh, 2019. And I wasn't taking it seriously. I thought, okay, they're talking, but they're not serious. And then we realized, actually, this looks in, 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 you know, in earnest, and the government really does appear to be approving it. And were you part of the advocacy to make this change happen? No, actually, I was not. That mm. happened in 2018. And there were a number of friends of ours who were involved with it. Um, but as that came down the pipe, we realized that this was truly going to be approved. And Washington State's a progressive state, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call us radical. I mean, we're, you know, we're progressive. And uh, for some reason, Washington State was the first place on the planet to legalize. And that's a really important thing because we could sit here and come up with a really environmental way of dealing with our deceased. The only problem would be it's illegal and we have to get it ratified. So when that happened and the ratification looked imminent, I realized that this was an incredible chance to do something that was going to change the world. And we began to develop the science and the technology to do it. And in 2020, mid-year, uh, the, the legalization happened. Well, I'm sorry, 2020. Yeah, 2020, it all legalized. And uh, we were able to get our equipment and our science dialed. We built our facility and we launched in 2021, in the mid-year, in June. Mm -hmm. So wow. now we are up and running. Uh, and have any other states followed in the US or do you know of any countries around the world where this is common practice? So we have had real, ra you know, real rapid follow-up. So Oregon and Colorado have both legalized. And there are a number of other states that are also doing so. And we're hearing from a number of other countries that are also actively considering it. So we think that this wave is going to be fairly rapid. So three states in America. And, uh, and I think Europe is going to go yeah. as well. I, I can't speak to Australia. You probably know more than I do. No, but I don't. This is brand oh, yeah. new for me to even think about. So I love going in with a curious mind because I will absolutely be seeing what the situation is here. Um, and 
Do we know how we came to this crazy place of, of putting people in boxes underground? What's the history there? Definitely. So it was uh, actually in the American Civil War that it became most prevalent to embalm a body. Um, before that, it was pretty commonplace to have uh, what uh, is known as a coffin, which is a non-lined anthropoidal in shape, uh, you know, usually a pine box with a person placed inside, uh, no chemical treatment. After the Civil War happened, uh, young men were needing to be shipped home. And so they were being preserved in mass and sent back to their place of uh, residence so that their families could say goodbye to them and bury them. Um, and, and thus the traditional, uh, as far as the US uh, American traditional funeral was born and uh, people started taking over for what may have been a job that the family used to do. And uh, they started taking their loved ones and preserving them for visitations and viewings. And since then, it's been very common practice to, you know, practice traditional funeral rites uh, for different religious purposes or just family traditions. Um, and then within, you know, the last 40 years or so, uh, cremation has gradually risen in prevalence. Um, and then here in the Northwest, of course, our cremation rates are in the 90% uh, range. So uh, King County specifically, 90% of our decedents are cremated. Um, and the environmental impact on both is significant. But, uh, but for me personally, working in that environment, certainly cremation is something that you don't think of the impact of it until you're participating in it. Mm. Um, and can you talk us through specifically what that impact looks like? Oh, definitely. I... Uh, Basically, what happens is people are given the opportunity to have that traditional embalming or viewing. Um, some people choose to do that and some people decide not to. But ultimately, uh, there's a large oven. It's called a retort and it's got a flame um, in the front part of the machine and then also in the back part of the machine and heat flows beneath and people are placed into the retort and it takes around two hours on average, and what happens is, is an extreme amount of energy is used to uh, burn the body and to turn it into what we've learned to call just charred carbon, essentially. Um, anything that the body might be able to give to the earth is blown up through the smokestack as greenhouse gas. And what we return to the family is completely inert and has no nutrition and is definitely not continuing the cycle of life in any way. So, um, Speaking as someone who's done both, I'm a licensed embalmer as well. Um, the traditional funerals, they have their own sets of, um, you know, concerns environmentally as far as land use in perpetuity and then separating the body for set through several layers of, uh, you know, embalming a casket that's lined, like you said, polyester lined, uh, sometimes sealed. And then of course a rebar concrete liner around it. So um, so we're big fans of, of what we do because it's really is, it feels good to go to work every day and know that I'm being able to continue that life cycle and produce something and return something to families that's not only tangible and something they can run their hands through, but something that gives new life to the world around them. Mm -hmm. And that's fascinating that, uh, you know, we think about cremation because it takes up less space, I guess, as a more sustainable option, but the actual act of cremating a body is very energy intensive. And I mean, how many people are dying every day? Do we have a bit of a stat on that? 
Oh yeah. So mm. in our state, I can't uh, speak to Australia. Oh no, that's fine. Yeah. But to our state, we have 55,000 people who die every year. And there's about two and a half million people who die in America every year. And each cremation is burning about 30 gallons of fuel. So it's enough to drive from San Francisco to Los Angeles and back. And the big misnomer, the thing that I think has been so difficult to, you know, to sort of overcome is we've been taught in America at least that cremation is the environmental alternative. And it's actually environmentally deeply problematic. And I think it's changing that mindset that's such an important one. And this is about dying. We're not taking, you know, we're not selling toasters here. This isn't a survey to see who is going to die. Everyone is. And so we need to have a method that allows us to go back to the earth without poisoning it. And, uh, and this is sort of the time for that to happen. I think we're going to see a real renaissance. Yeah. And what would it be if you just put a dead person underground to decompose naturally? You mentioned the word poison there. What would be poisonous about that? It's not the body that's poisonous. Mm -hmm. It's the things that are put into the body before we bury it that are poisonous. Got it. And what would, and what, go, what would yeah. those be? Well, we use embalming fluid. Yeah, and got it's it. largely formaldehyde. And there's a lot of discussions about what formaldehyde does and doesn't do. But actually, the thing I'd really like to talk about, and we often do this, is it's interesting, is we're actually much more concerned about formaldehyde for the living than we are for the dead. Um, something we don't talk about is our funeral workers, and there are hundreds of thousands of them worldwide, are breathing formaldehyde. And most of the people who are embalmers over the age of 40 have no sense of smell. This is a carcinogen. And so it's really interesting in that we're always talking about the environment and these things. And by the way, that's all very important. But we should also be talking about the people that have to deal with a hazardous work environment. Oh, 100%. Focus on a great deal. And if often we find that win-win, don't we? When we actually think about what's best for us, really best for us, it ends up most often being best for the planet as well. Surprise, surprise. It's actually good all around. Mm -hmm. So yes. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about terramation then. Who came up with this term? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, oh, good on you. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was really important we come up with the word, you know, like when you talk cremation, you know, and you, your loved one goes to the funeral home, they don't say, so would you like us to uh, incinerate them today? Um, right? Yeah. Or how about we take your, you know, your loved Shall one? Shall we compost grandma exactly. today? Shall we put them underground have, and inter yeah, them? Doesn't and, quite know. have the right so, ring to it. Right. So we have words to keep us uh, uh, feeling comfortable and to feel like where our defenses aren't up. So for us, we invented, you know, created the word terramation, terra, earth, mation, transformation. Um, and we think it's a, it's a great one to do. And so that's, that's sort of why we, why we did it. Um, traditionally, or I should say customarily, people are using the word human composting. But what happens is um, the first time someone hears that, they say, ooh, you know, that's, that's a little weird. And really, if we said, well, this is terramation, what it does is it gently transforms human remains into soil, just the way nature does it, only faster. Mm. Yeah. Um, people are like, oh, okay, that resonates. Yeah. And to be fair, we've been doing for hundreds of thousands of years of existence. We haven't even done anything. Nature just took care of it. Yeah. So uh, we just sort of want nature to do what it always has done, but we would like to speed it up a touch. Yeah. And in the in the the within the constraints of modern society and all of the rules we might have to follow to make sure that people aren't just putting people in backyards and, and you know, there, there needs to be paths, I guess, for this to be 
I don't want to use the word uh, policed, but maybe just done in the right way through the right yeah, channels. Properly yeah. regulated. Absolutely. Yeah, properly regulated. That's exactly what yeah. I was trying to say. Absolutely. So we now then have terramation in the mix of our options for saying goodbye and, uh, and allowing for that transformation to occur. How do we then avoid formaldehyde use in between when the person passes away and when that ceremony occurs? Well, it's not really required unless you're planning on having a public visitation, at least in the state of Washington, to have your loved one embalmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Embalming is very specific to different circumstances. In most states, it's not required at all. So um, even shipping in between states or shipping on an airplane, you can pack people on ice. Um, Refrigeration works very similarly to embalming. So if the person passes away and as long as you're keeping their body cool, um, you're slowing decomposition, certainly not in the same way that formaldehyde will in the way that it actually, uh, it preserves and really, really, really delays that decomposition. But keeping somebody cool and on ice and in refrigeration will accommodate their family time for travel a week or two. Um, We still prepare people for their loved ones to say goodbye to them. Um, But for us, health and safety standards say that we can't have people uh, viewed publicly. So these are private, small family gatherings um, where people are coming together to really say a final goodbye to their loved one. Um, But that's something that we really want to uh, change the narrative is that you can have someone at your home. You know, we would, uh, true to our namesake, be happy to help people in their homes uh, set up and place their loved one on ice bags and things like that so that they can stay there for a day or overnight, or if the family wants to have some kind of um, goodbye ceremony at home before they're brought into our care. Um, So we're kind of trying to open people's eyes up to the fact that embalming is absolutely not a requirement unless uh, there are extreme reconstructive circumstances that need to take place. Um, There's certainly a time and a place for it, but it to us is, uh, should not be common practice. It, it, it's incredibly wasteful in, in our opinion. And if someone is embalmed, they cannot go into our process. So our process relies on the microbes in our body. Like we are designed to return to the earth. We're hardwired to do it. And the way it happens is that the microbes in our body, that which digests our own food, transforms us. But if we use formaldehyde or embalming fluid, it kills all the microbes in our body. And therefore that process cannot go forward. It goes back to your original comment, which is, you know, in a broad sense, if it's bad for one thing, it's, it's tough for another. And so for embalming, uh, it would stop our process cold and make it impossible. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's huge. And so like, then I think about all of the toxic chemicals that we ingest through processed food, through, uh, the, the things we're putting on our skin, um, maybe surrounded by agricultural chemicals, are any of these things hindering the natural process, like on a much smaller scale, obviously, than a formaldehyde application would? Um, not really. No. I mean, there, there's not, it would, it would really have to be something quite substantial to, Got it. to stop it. So it would have to be something systemic. So in general, uh, no, we have a couple things that we wouldn't do. So for example, a prion related disease, uh, that is something like Ebola would mm-hmm. be something now that's not something that would slow the process, but it would prevent us from taking part in a terramation just because those are contagious diseases. But really there is nothing really that would prevent us save something like formaldehyde. That yeah. Would, that would 
that would really put it on. Wow. And our so, process, sorry. I was just going to say our process uh, is composting goes. The people in the vessels come up to a temperature where pharmaceuticals and things that might exist within the body mm -hmm. are actually mm -hmm. made, um, made in there and they're killed during that process. And, and, so what we're finding in soil samples that we've taken is a very, um, very evenly pHed and uh, nutritionally dense uh, product that has no trace signs of any of those pharmaceuticals or maybe, um, you know, things that people might be taking into their body on a regular basis. So uh, that's also part of why, uh, you know, we love a green burial too, but we're allowed to remove um, implants and like hip implants and titanium and things that are inside of the body um, through our process that aren't going directly into the earth. Uh, so we're also saving heavy metals and things of that sort. Wow. And who, like, can we then talk about the process? So let's just say 70 year old male comes through, they've had a metal hip put in at some point in their life and they had, I'm just going to throw like butt cheek implants uh, because they always had, you know, just a complex there. And so we always talk about females having to change stuff. I'm, I'm going to change it. Uh, men also go through these experiences as well. And plastic surgery is huge. So um, what do you, what happens? This body arrives with you guys. What sure. happens? Sure. So, uh, the body arrives in our facility and Bree is an, and Katie are embalmers, uh, funeral directors, morticians, uh, and they have the right, the legal right, which is quite specific, at least in the United States to alter a body, to take something out. So in the case of, uh, this individual, the only thing that we would remove, he doesn't seem to have it is a pacemaker. And that's a very easily removable thing. And that's the only thing we would do. Um, the reason for that is because it beeps and we wouldn't want that in our vessels at that time. Other than that, we don't need to remove anything uh, from this 70 year old man. We use a vessel, it's eight feet long by three and a half feet high by three and a half feet wide. We fill it with organics, alfalfa, straw and sawdust at a three to one ratio of organics to body weight. So let's call him Mr. Smith. Um, Mr. Smith, Smith weighs 200 pounds. We put 600 pounds of organics, a base of organics, put in Mr. Smith and fill the rest of the vessel up. We close the vessel and we let it sit for about a month. End of that month, what happens, or actually very quickly, the bulking agent, the organics act like kindling in a way, bringing the body up to temperature. And then the microbes in the body kick in and it's remarkable. The body will go north of 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And excuse me, we use enough energy to power about one fifth of a hairdryer. That's wow. the net of what we do. Wow. And so once the body begins to go, it is drawing air in exactly like a fire. It's pulling it in the bottom where the air is cool and it's releasing it out the top, right? Where the air is warm and rises. After a month, the body is completely gone. There's some bone left. We reduce it in the same way they do with cremation, except we take that bone, reintroduce it to the soil, let it sit for another month, and it's gone. The bone has actually disappeared. Now, after that first month is where we would remove Mr. Smith's, I take it he had a Brazilian butt lift? Yes, he had a Brazilian yes, butt lift. So yes. we would take out uh, uh, Mr. Smith's uh, implants. Those are uh, silicone bags, and they would be simply sitting in the mix because the body would be gone. And if he had any implants that were actually stuck into his bones, those are easily removable, say hip, I think as you'd mentioned, that would be recycled. And again, the bone would be reduced 
reintroduced to the soil, let sit for 30 days and gone. Mm, Wow. And we have a very important thing to us. We don't alter bodies. So we Mm -hmm. don't take it out in the beginning because there's no need. We Mm -hmm. would only do it once the body is gone and our process Mm -hmm. allows for that. Yeah. Wow. And is there anything that can be done with the silicone? Boy, I don't believe so. I think Mm. silicone is unfortunately going to have to be disposed of as medical waste. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we and and yeah, but we're a lot more familiar with your joints and and these sorts yeah. of things. And absolutely, they are reusable. Amazing. And so those get plugged into a recycling circular system, turned into new products. Absolutely. And then the human. At what point do we become soil in this process? After thirty days, we are pretty much soil. Wow. It's uh, quite. Uh, it's quite remarkable. And what do we do with this soil? Where does it go? How does it get used? So it's up to the family. The next of kin signs authorizations that uh, release the remains however they see fit. So some families are taking, uh, well, I guess we should start by letting you know what we end up with because 800 pounds of organics go uh, or total in the vessel, including the body weight. But what we end up with is the body has transformed and we lose a little bit of water weight. So we're resting right at about 500 pounds of material that we can return to the family. Um, We are noticing a lot of families want to take that full amount of terramated remains home with them. I was going to say, you can plant a rose garden and it would be this incredible, you know, uh, way to like, every time you would look at those flowers in bloom, you would remember that special person. How amazing. It's beautiful. It really Mm. is. We recently had a family, um, you've seen a barrier, a tree barrier, right? Where they're planted in a line to protect maybe a home or uh, recently a family came in, got their father and that's their plan for him. They're planting a barrier on the side of their home that receives the most wind and he's going to act as a protective covering over their home. So, um, So we're seeing a lot of families take the full amount of their loved one home. For those who might be more urban, who don't have that option, and maybe the land, uh, what we did is we purchased a Greenbelt location. It's about a 10 minute drive north of our facility here in Auburn. And it is a Greenbelt as certified by the state of Washington, which means it can never be developed upon. So in perpetuity, nothing can be placed there. So if the family wants to take maybe a couple smaller bags home with them, or even as little as an urn amount home with them, they have the opportunity to uh, have their loved one returned to an area uh, that we cleaned off of a lot of garbage and a couple of vehicles actually (laughs) very beautiful now and uh, and it's gorgeous now because we cleaned it out and are revitalizing it with um both those who the family you know couldn't take their loved one or they actually chose themselves they wanted to give back to the earth and and in our local flora in our local area so Uh, We give them those options and they can choose to take as much and give as much as they want. And uh, it's been really interesting, interesting for us to see how people um, have that conversation because it's so new because with burial, there's nothing tangible to return with cremation. It's a very small amount, a small box that we're returning to people and, uh, and we're returning 500 pounds of uh, odorless, rich, fertile soil that really promotes new growth on anything it touches. So it's extraordinary. The first thing we often find that a family does when Brie hands them a bag of, of the soil is they, they put their arms around it. 
And uh, I don't think that that's something that would happen maybe with cremation. I never saw that with cremation. No. And what an incredible thing, what an incredible process for people to actually make that connection between soil and life. We're in modern, busy, crazy worlds, completely disconnected by nature, certainly in the hyper-urbanised areas um, where people really have lost that connection. It is a way to actually instantly rebuild it. Totally. Yeah, and you can, you know, something that's different is you, I mean, I've never seen someone open up the bag of cremated remains and, you know, dig their hands inside. Um, But one of the first people I returned home, his wife, invited me into her home and had this very intimate moment that I shared with her where she actually just ripped the bag open. She just could not wait. And she just (laughs) stuck her hands inside of the soil because the, the, the person that's in there and the bones and the everything that's inside of that bag that was her husband is now just rich, fertile, clean, usable soil. And, and she just dug her hands right in. And it was the most um, moving moment to be part of because it's so foreign to anything that I had ever seen prior to that. And, and since then I've been blown away by people's reactions to, um, when they see it, because it, it really can't be expressed enough that it's, um, it's what the body was meant to do, but the final product is so flawless. I mean, it is absolutely such a fulfilling moment to return something so life-giving, when someone has lost the love of their life. Mm, so and a, powerful. And as a slight twist, and I realize it's not necessarily on the environmental bent, but the, the other part that's really amazing is we find that the person who's passing is often the one who calls us. And as Brie oh, right. says, yeah. So, you know, it's not often you receive a call, you know, in a funeral home and the person says, you know, I'm dying and I'm really in a lot of, you know, it's a hard time, but I want you to know, I'm just so excited about my upcoming cremation. Right. Mm. Said nobody ever, ever. No, ever. no, no. In our case, I'm so gonna, looking forward to my family. This is taking yeah, this part is in be the one digging a ditch. In a dark and, time. Uh, yeah. Right. No. Uh, but for us, it really no kidding is we often get the call from the person themselves. Um, we had a call two weeks ago that was made to Brie, a woman called and she said, hi, um, I'll be dying tomorrow with death with dignity, we call it in the United States, which is if you are have a, a painful assisted dying, illness, right, yeah. assisted, uh, assisted death. She said, very matter of factly, I'll be I'll be going tomorrow. Uh, can you make sure that you take care of me and please make sure my son's OK? And um, how about that? And uh, so we did. And uh, she was in our care the following day. And so for us, that's an incredibly powerful thing, even for us in this industry to be handling people like that. Well, you don't normally get to talk to your actual, like the customer is usually gone. It's, it's, yeah. We do. We got another call from a man. He'd been dying. He had, he was, he was dying that week and the phone rang and it was his wife. And she said, well, he's on the phone. And we said, well, he can't be because he's really not, not well. And it was him. And he said, hi, I just want to be sure that I can give back and thank you. And he hung up the phone and we, uh, we, we went and got him later that day as well. So I think there's something deep inside our bones that wants this. I think it's what we're meant to do. And I think it's what we want to do. It's just, no one has ever given us the opportunity and it's compelling. And let me ask, is someone still able to be an organ donor and be a part of your service? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, our real only limitations are uh, prion related diseases and also um, embalming and formaldehyde. But we definitely have served multiple families who have been donors or um, cases that are tragic where people have been autopsied. Um, Katie and I are both trained to uh, prepare bodies and, and have learned more, much more eco-friendly methods of kind of putting people back together so their loved ones can still see them. And, uh, and so really nothing changes. It's, it's the exact same. Wow. Um, you know, offering of experiences, except we go a little further and we offer for people to be hands-on if they want to, you know, bathe their loved one with us. Everybody who comes to our facility gets a bath with herbal soap and we make sure that they're very clean before they're placed in the vessel, just because for us, it's a, it's a matter of their dignity and respect for their body and really creating rituals that are for our staff to remember that each person is someone who is loved and cherished. And so we invite families to participate. So, um, so they can be donors, they can be, uh, have had, you know, any kind of, um, surgeries. And usually we're still able to allow the family a final goodbye and then proceed with our process. Wow. You know, I've taken a few deep breaths and almost felt like I had tears kind of coming a couple of times listening to you guys speak about this process. And I think that's because, uh, again, I've realized as we talk how disconnected we've become from the cycle of life and how this is actually offering a new way forward for people. Uh, I'm sure there are many of you guys around the world that we maybe don't even know about yet who are really trying to get this across the line. Uh, it feels like a, a, a rewising, uh, like, you know, just if we spoke to Indigenous leaders about this, they'd be like, yeah, and? Exactly right. <laughs> you know, because says, of course this makes sense. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and your point about the tears, too, I think that is really important uh, for me as a person who came into the industry and as a, a man, you know, uh, coming in and feeling the emotion of it. It's very, very powerful um, stuff. And I find that it's deeply affecting uh, to everybody involved, um, including my team of, you know, funeral directors, because many of the times we're doing something we actually haven't done before. And when we leave that, that path that we understand and we go into areas that are new, it's deeply, deeply affecting. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite, it's amazing, but it's also, it's also hard. Yeah. But remarkable, yeah. Yeah, and Brie, would you say as someone who has uh, directly communicated with the families, grieving families, in a more conventional sense through cremation or burial, and now through this way, would you say that you're noticing that there is uh, something, um, I mean, you've even shared a couple of examples, so I kind of know what your answer is going to be, but you're noticing that this feels more right for people on a much deeper level. It's somehow helping their grieving process uh, as they move through in those initial stages. Definitely, because what's happening is, is we're taking something that, uh, does take a while, you know, with uh, the body breaking down, um, instead of meeting with a family on a Monday, cremating their loved one that 
the, you know, Wednesday and returning them in the urn that Friday. And I never see that family again. I'm meeting with families and having two months of time where I'm able to help guide them through their journey, whether um, their grief journey is uh, them being heartbroken and just devastated through the whole process, or um, they need to come see their loved one every single day when they're at our facility. Um, we are open to the public to be visited so that people can see what we do. And uh, families come visit their loved ones and they decorate their vessels and they they take time. Um, and, and what we've seen is a real development of people's grief journey a, a, a lot deeper than we have seen before because we have so much more time with them and we get to take them by the hand and really walk them through um, and another you know, point to make is that we don't rush them through anything. Um, there's no hurry for us to schedule a service. There's no hurry for us to have you sign the paperwork so that we can keep the crematory running. Um, there's no rush. And so if the family isn't ready to make arrangements for a little while, we give them the time that they need and we meet them where they are. Uh, however, we need to adjust to do that. And that's something that I feel I'm very grateful to have Katie on our team now because uh, it's a big commitment to these families that we're taking because we really are seeing them through a much more deep grief journey than anything that I ever experienced previous to this. Mm. And you know what is beautiful is the conventional way is they are dead and they are gone uh, or, or reduced to dust. Uh, but your new way, terramation, is they have died in their physical uh, body of this particular life, but they have become something new and, uh, and they're still a life. Uh, very, very much. And I think yeah. part of this transformation, and we do think of it as a transformation, is we realize now, too, how very much it involves the living. You'd have asked me in the very beginning, I would have said, well, we would help families in the same way maybe a crematorium does. You give us your loved one, we'll transform them into soil and give the soil back to you. You don't know me, nor do you care to, and thank you. And our experience, Brie and Katie didn't agree with me and they were right, but we digress. Um, but nonetheless, they need, they need this space. They need to be part of this. Um, they need to be part, and, and I think this is every bit as much about the living as it is about both our planet and the dead. And uh, we need these things and, and, and we haven't had them and we haven't had them for so long, we don't even speak that language. For example, if you said to me, uh, I don't know, let's give an example, my mother passes and you say to me, would you like to bathe your mother? My first response in the previous me would be, are you crazy, <laughs> right? But of course I want to do that. And so do many people. We haven't, we, we've lost our language. We've lost our ability to ask what it is we need. Okay, fine. Bathing is not exactly what you do. It's a bit much. Would you like to sit with your mother? Would you like to talk to her for 10 minutes? Would you like to bring your kids to be next to her for a period of time? Would you like to fill her vessel with flowers? Those are very natural responses, but we lack that language because it's been, it's been taken away for so long. It was the realm of the funeral home. They Absolutely. will take the body. They will get the body where it needs to be. You can put on a clean suit and you can stand next to the casket. Yeah. And that is the extent, but that's not what our hearts want. Mm, and it's no. very visceral. And we see it in our families. And you could have knocked me down. I, I, I didn't know that. 
we try to encourage families to participate as much as they feel like they want to. So we're professionals, we can handle it from top to bottom. That's what we're trained to do and we're happy to. But what I didn't do in my previous employment was um, offer them to be participatory in every single way that they want to be. And also just to be completely transparent about every single thing. Um, you can walk into my prep room anytime you want and it's going to smell like essential oils and it's going to be uh, clean and there, you know, there's not toxic chemicals everywhere. You can completely see what we do in every aspect. And, and that feels really good to me as a provider, because I feel like people should ask more questions of how their loved ones are being cared for. And I, I hold my staff standards extremely high because we believe very strongly that care for the deceased and care for their loved one when uh, they're at their most vulnerable is is our our tribute to them and the life that they lived and us acknowledging that they're as much as important as if it was our mother or our fiance or you know whoever's that person that we love um, next to us and so we treat every single person like they're ours yeah that's beautiful and that idea that people can come and visit every day for the 30 days of the process occurring, I think speaks again to many cultural traditions around the world where people have brought offerings and read poetry or, uh, you know, passages from various religious texts, if they're religious. Uh, and it's, it's just so natural because then you actually get to move through grief instead of thinking, okay, they, they're dead, they're gone. And now I have to just try and live my life. And it's, it's a broken psychological system uh, and it's not practical either. It's impossible to switch things on and off when it yeah. comes to the human heart. Uh, We're so, not big fans of closure. Mm, yeah. I, I don't really yeah. believe in the whole concept of closure and shutting it out because if that person is your person, you never stop loving them forever you never stop. So what is that closure, you know, and, and when they, they lower the casket or you get your box of remains, the funeral home steps out of the picture. And, and our hope is that people continue to uh, look to us for resource help and to look to us as, as friends and people who will help them through every step of the death journey, because it never really ends once that person's gone. It never, they never stopped being gone. Mm -mm. Yeah. I spoke to a psychologist last year. I had a beautiful show about grief and she said, one of the most important things we can do with our loved ones when they pass is not to uh, live your life alone without them and figure out how to do that, but to actually change the relationship you have with them in this new chapter. Uh, and I know that helps so many people that reframe that idea that you still get to have a relationship is just different and you define it in a new way. Um, it definitely feels like it's a much healthier way forward. And then imagine adding to that, seeing new life grow from yeah, things, yeah. Or, or things that they loved or, you know, from house plants to rose gardens. And it is so funny because it's so new. People will ask like, well, can I do these things? You know, can I use the soil in this way? We're like, we are not, not the proprietor <laughs> of your soil. You, you go do it. You know, can I sing? Of course, you know, sing your lungs out. Um, you know, can we put certain things in the vessel? Can I put my wedding cake piece in there? Of course you can, you know? Um, so our answers are always, you know, it's not really, it, it is interesting how constrained it's been, but I think you hear people and what they want. And Bree's answer typically is just, yeah, absolutely. 
And it's quite, it's quite amazing. Absolutely. So amazing. And so uh, when, um, when we talk about how much it costs to bury a live, a, a, a person who's passed in our family or a friend um, in the traditional sense, how does what we're doing with terramation compare? I worked for a cemetery and funeral home before this, that uh, burial spaces started at about $5,000 and uh, increased from there for like a traditional burial space. Um, for urns, it's less, you know, of course, because the spaces are smaller and it depends. But if we're talking traditional burial, where I was working after the services, which would end up being around $6,000, uh, $5,000 minimum burial space, uh, usually around a you know, $3,000 casket or so, it was easily $10,000 plus. Um, and that was on the lower end. So uh, for a cremation with a memorial service, we're sitting at about that $5,000 mark uh, as well. And our services are $4,950. We wanted to be um, extremely uh, competitive to what exists right now and already. But, um, but to us, it's also a matter of knowing that they're in our care for so long that, you know, they're, it's, it's like a vacation. It's like going and staying in a place for two months, you know, and, and so we tried to make it reasonable and cost-effective for people while also being able to maintain profitability to some extent. So. Well, you have to live absolutely <laughs> um, for sure. But at, at the same time, I think it's, it's amazing that you've managed to keep it comparable to other options, if not less in some cases, because so often making the right choice, making the more sustainable choice usually means you end up having to fork out more. Like if you want to get the decent quality stainless steel bottle, like just talking about an everyday example that's going to last you 20 years, it tends to cost four times the price of the cheap tinny one at the $2 shop. Um, and so, you know, we, we're often faced with these sacrifices to do the better thing, uh, whereas here we're not, which I think is really um, amazing that you've been able to, to achieve that. Mm. So um, how do we actually make this the standard way in, uh, in the industry, if you like? I hate using the word industry when it comes to death and dying, but it is one and it is a business at the end of the day. Um, are there hopeful stories that you see when it comes to, you mentioned that there were a couple of other states that had legalised it. Uh, do, we, do we think it's about showing a business case for it and a, a psychological case for it that then accelerates the change and makes this a worldwide norm? There is one thing that's stopping this from going like wildfire across the planet, I believe, and it's the fact that it's death. You are far more adept at this than we are. And I know you're talking about environmental issues all day long. And many of them are just commonly discussed. I don't know, the food we eat, the cars we drive, the air we breathe. And these are things we talk about and we do it freely. We might disagree, but it's not taboo and, and, and have at it. We're talking about dying. And that involves acknowledging our mortality. But even more importantly, it involves acknowledging that the people we love, our family, our friends can die. And that prevents the discussion. And it's not about a business or a funeral industry. It's about we as a, as a global community discussing amongst ourselves what it is we want when we die. What is it we want with our, with our loved ones when they die? And that actually is where you come in. It's the spreading of this discussion. 
And what happens is when we first talk about a disposition method like this, it's very easy to be sort of pigeonholed, no pun intended, as a cuckoo bird, right? Where it's like, oh, this is really weird. These people are talking about composting people. Really? I don't know. Putting people in blast furnaces seems like a lot to me, you know? <laughs> or in a polyester coffin. Really yeah. yeah. When they go, yeah. well, that's disgusting. Our answer is usually compared to what? Um, so I think what it really is, is a breakdown of, of these, of these, of these fears in us and our ability to, it, this is going to happen around the kitchen table. It's not about being a business. Um, it's about us talking to each other about what it is we want and clarity with that. And I'm just going to give one quick one that I think is both painful, but also hopeful, which is our first five people who came to us were young. They were under the age of 40. In fact, I think that most of them were under the age of 35 and, there's a very specific, or I wouldn't say specific, but a, a power, the power of that grief is, 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 quite, is quite something. And in seeing that, of course, it was hard. Um, but there was another side to it, which is we realized very quickly as we saw these young people coming to us, they chose us. They called us a lot of the time. They made sure that this was done. And I think what that says to us is our youth, our young people are going to teach us how to die better. And we think that's incredibly important. That discussion has to begin. And I actually don't know if it's gonna come from, I'm 50, my generation. I have great hope in our younger ones being able to begin this discussion. Hopefully talking to their mother and their grandfather um, and, and beginning this. Yeah. Well, but, you've uh, certainly inspired me to have a conversation <laughs> at some point coming up with my own parents. With, sure. You know, because we, we, uh, we put death in this, this is the most absolutely horrible thing that could happen. And yeah, it is because it is so gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. But at the same time, it is going to happen to literally every human on the planet. And uh, having a conversation about how that's going to play out. I mean, I know my dad would probably much prefer to become his rose garden than uh, and start breathing life into that rose garden for many, many more years as he has while he's alive uh, and tending to that garden than he would in a box in the countryside somewhere. And it's that discussion that's just so, so central to everything. It's the antithesis of an impulse purchase. It's the most intentional, it's, you know, the, it's, not the, it's not the candy bar as you leave the shop, you know, it's, it's the most intentional thing we do. And it requires buy-in. It's not like one person decides this is it. You know, the children need to be in on it. The, the spouse needs to discuss it, you know. These are things that need to be discussed, understood, and mutually agreed upon. And that, that's a thing that takes time. Yeah, it does. Well, thank you very much for inspiring us to take that time to have these conversations and to do some research into how end of life might look around us in our local communities all around the world. I think a lot of people would certainly be resonating with what you're saying. Uh, and uh, I, I almost feel inspired, actually, uh, by what you're doing. So thank you for being pioneers in this space. I think it's so, it's hard when you're one of the first kids on the block and most people still think you're probably crazy. Uh, but, you know, from speaking to you both and hearing about what you're doing, I know it's the future, absolutely, without a doubt. And I want to thank you for taking the brave steps that you've taken as a business to create change and a new conversation. 
Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Alex. Yeah, it's been an honor being here. And just so that you and your listeners know, at our webpage, www.returnhome.com, we are available by chat and we answer questions anytime. So you can reach out to us and one of us will be responding to you. And uh, we love the weird questions. We love the questions about, you know, how do I make this happen? And just to help inform and educate is a really big part of our goal in uh, sitting down with people like you to have this discussion because it's so important to feel empowered and educated in what will be your last act on earth. So yeah, beautiful. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life uh, and, of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox Life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Lotox Club for just $49 Australian per year which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.